0: Let's pray together, Father God, our hope is in you today, Lord, in a world that is flooded with despair, be our anchor, God, our faith is in you. Lord, when the world feels like it's unraveling, when your hand seems still, when the way seems unclear, our faith is still in you. And God, when grief seems suffocating, when we seem small and helpless, comfort is in you. And when the world is raging all around us, when there's anxiety and hurt, Lord, peace comes from you. Lord, sometimes we ask for your kingdom to come, but we don't We don't exactly know what it's supposed to look like when it does. But you do. And we're asking again, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on this earth, here in this zip code, here in this nation. Let it be done, not around us, but let it be done through us. Show us what it means to cooperate with your will so that we can be agents of this kingdom we declare. God, we repent of wanting you to do things for us rather than partnering with you to see this world redeemed for your purposes speak life and truth to us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Today we are continuing our series called Run Church Run. We're looking at this idea of mission. We're looking at what is driving the people of God in the first part of the New Testament, the book of Acts. We're saying, what what does it mean for people who claim Christ as king to move in the direction that he is headed the date is march 18 2012 the place is los angeles california today i will attempt to run my very first marathon with the assistance of my friend mike i put in my miles i'm ready i'm up before the dawn i put on my jersey with my bib number i put on my shorts i lace up my running shoes It's important to go over every detail of race day, to plan for every single contingency. I've studied the race course, I know the elevation, I know where the hills are. And I almost took a bus to the starting line in order to get there with plenty of time, but my friend Mike, his brother is local and he's offered to give us a ride to the starting line. So we leave his house at 5.30 a.m. We've got an hour to get there, it should only take us a half an hour, everything's fine. Until we hit traffic. Not slow traffic, mind you, stop traffic. Like, red taillights as far as the eye can see. There's still 30 minutes to get there, but my stress level is gradually increasing. We inch forward, now it's 20 minutes until the gun. In my gut, I know we're gonna be late, and panic is sweeping over me in waves. Now it's 10 minutes. We're probably a half a mile away from the starting line at Dodger Stadium, and finally, in a moment of panic, I tell Mike, get out of the car. We're gonna make a run for it. So there we are. Running down the side of the road to a race where we'll run some more, (laughs) a lot more. So our marathon wasn't just a run to the finish, ours was a sprint to the starting line. This morning we're going to look at the first followers of Jesus as they barrel towards the starting line. And my guess is every single one of us are inching towards one of two starting lines in our own spiritual journey. Some of us are moving towards a starting line where we are going to start. Maybe today, you are going to start your relationship with Jesus Christ. And others of us were in a starting line where we are going to start telling other people about the wonder and the glory of Jesus Christ, maybe for the first focused and intentional time in our lives. But before we talk about our individual starting lines, let's look at this passage together. If you've got one of our Bibles, you can turn to page 1091. We're looking at Acts Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, uh, the passage that you have already heard read. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Now, in order for us to kind of fully grasp the scope of what's happening in this moment, we need to understand what Pentecost is. Some of us, we think of Pentecost as this moment. The moment where the Holy Spirit fell and people spoke in other languages. But in truth, they called it Pentecost before that even happened. Pentecost is kind of like a a Greek word for a Hebrew term Shavuot, which is a festival that everybody was in town celebrating. It was a festival, a celebration of the harvest. This is commanded by God in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. So back in the day, people would celebrate this festival out in their respective villages. But when the temple was constructed, people had a common focal point for celebration and worship. So Jews are coming from all over the known world. Many of them aren't like literally bringing sacks of grain, but if they've had a harvest in their particular area, then they kind of traded that for money, and they bring that money, and their money ends up being the offering that they give to God in this moment. The people are in a festive mood. Why? Because if you're in an agrarian society and you have a harvest, it means that you'll have food to eat for the next year. So it's a time of joy, excitement, and national pride. 120 of Jesus' most loyal followers are praying together in a room, and that's when this Metaphorical starting gun goes off for the race of mission. There's a sound of wind. It sounds like a rushing wind. Have you ever been like, heard hurricane force winds on TV? It sounds like a truck is coming through the room. That would have been the volume, the intensity of the noise. And then they have these images of fire that's resting on each one of them to physically represent that God is touching every life in the room. And the people who are listening from every nation under heaven hear people speaking in languages that they have never learned. Now, some people say, why does does this matter? This isn't a story that's happening in a vacuum. This is a chapter in the larger unfolding drama of God's redemption. And many scholars believe that what is happening in Acts 2 is actually referring back to what happens in Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, we read this. It says, Now the whole world had one language, a common speech. The people moved eastward, and they found a plain in Shinar. This would be kind of near modern-day Iraq. And they settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves." Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people, speaking the same language, they had begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. And they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel. The Hebrew word for Babel means confused because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. Babel scatters people. Babel scatters people. And what I love about this particular passage is that God intentionally confuses the people to save them from themselves. What's the goal of the tower? The goal is to make a name for themselves. And if you look carefully, you actually see that there's been a a quantum shift forward in technology. Instead of finding actually having to go out and manually find rocks of the right size, what have they done? They have come up with a revolutionary way of manufacturing buildings. They're making bricks, and they invented tar. And so we have this technological advance. It's allowing people to do things that they were never able to do before have you ever noticed that throughout history, whenever there's a major technological advance, people take, a, in theory, people can take another step away from God. Why? Because when we develop science and we develop technology and we develop different programs, we can, we can manipulate the world to do things for us that we used to depend on God for. And so God is not opposed to technology. God is opposed to technology that is done in service to us. And people didn't say, hey, let's use these new tools and systems to honor the name of God. They said, no, let's use these tools and systems to what? To make a name for ourselves. To make a name for ourselves. I don't know about you, but there have been chapters in my life where I had a major personal endeavor, an academic endeavor, or a business endeavor that for whatever reason, it got a little wobbly. Like I thought I was doing the right thing for the right reasons, but at the end the wheels came off and sometimes I realize in hindsight that the reason that God allowed that endeavor to fail is because from the get-go it was never about God and it was only ever about me. And have you ever stopped to consider that sometimes God thwarts a certain activity in our life not because he doesn't love us, but because he loves us so much that in his mercy he prevents us from getting the thing that we want so that we can arrive at the place that we need. And that... That is why God, in his mercy, thwarts the human efforts to worship themselves rather than God. And now, in Acts chapter 2, in light of God's mercy, and in the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus takes the people that he has scattered and brings them back together. It says that they re- we read about Parthians and Medes and Elamites, Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, visitors from Rome, Cretans, and Arabs. And what do we hear at the last line? That every single one of these unique and distinct people groups, they say what? They say, we hear them, we hear these people declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Now, a lot of times, I I used to read this passage and I used to think that when people started speaking in tongues, they were like outlining the gospel for people. They weren't. When people started speaking in tongues, and we believe that this kind of speaking in tongues, speaking in a known language that people understand is different than the gift of tongues that we're going to read about later in 1 Corinthians 12. So this is a different kind of tongues. It's speaking a language that people already know. And when people start speaking in tongues, what do they start with? What is God's hook? What does he use to draw people in other than the sound and the lights and the noise? The words. The words are what? The words are telling stories about the incredible things God has done. So when we start a conversation with people who don't know God, what, what should our leading punch be? Should it be, the world is really screwed up and you need Jesus? Or should the opening line be, you are screwed up and you need Jesus? I don't know about you, but a lot of times growing up in church, the opening line that people started the gospel with was this, you are going to die. Well, that got my attention, but the the way that they were trying to call me to faith was through fear, not through joy. And the word of God says what? It says that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Not his wrath, not his rage, not his anger. It is his kindness that pulls us in and draws us back home. So what do the people start with? They start with proclaiming the wonders of God. I don't know about you, I think this world is desperate for people to tell good stories about what God is doing. This world is desperate for people to say, here are the wonders of God. Not here is the doctrine of God or here are some verses that I memorized. Here is the wonder of God. And here's what I love. It says, aren't these people speaking Galileans? It was kind of an insult. They're like, these Galileans, they're backwater people with no education. They, they can barely speak their own language well. They certainly aren't able to speak anybody else's. It says, what are they doing? They're declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. The wonders of God in our own tongue. One scholar said this. He goes, it's fascinating that God allows them to speak in tongues at all. Because in just a few moments, Peter's going to get up and speak a message, and he's not speaking it in 17 different languages. There aren't people translating Peter's message. Peter is speaking in one language. He's speaking in Aramaic. Why can he do that? Because everybody who's gathered there knows Aramaic. They can hear it. So here's the question. If everybody understood one common language, why did God speak to them in 15, 13, 17 languages at all? Why did God need tongues if everybody understood? And the reason is this. God doesn't want to speak to their brain. He wants to speak to their heart. And this scholar said, God loves every single person gathered so much that he wanted to speak to them in their heart language. You ever been traveling overseas, and you're overwhelmed, and you're confused, and you're jet-lagged, and then you see somebody in an airport terminal wearing, like, a a Sparty hat or a University of Michigan t-shirt, and somebody that you would never run up to in a Walmart in your own country is suddenly your best friend in a different continent. You're like, oh, you're my people. Let's eat a cheeseburger together. Why? Why? Because you felt alone and isolated and perplexed and overwhelmed until you found your, so you found your people, until so you found your tribe. And so God is saying, God has given these unschooled Galileans a miraculous gift in speaking a language that other people know. Why? So that he could connect with their hearts. And I believe that many of us, we love God, and we love the idea of mission, and we've got all of our content Nailed down, it's airtight. Our apologetics are good. Our theology is sound. What we are missing is the ability to connect with other people who don't know Jesus at a gut level. And we need the Holy Spirit to do that, friends. We need the miraculous infilling of the Holy Spirit to do that. I don't know about you, I don't know what your friends who are not followers of Jesus are saying on social media these days. But in light of our most recent tragedy, the one theme that I'm hearing loud and clear is this I don't need your thoughts and prayers. I don't know if anybody else has heard that. They're saying, you can, you can, you can keep your thoughts and prayers to yourself. I want, you, I want you to do something to respond to the pain of the world. What, they're, not, they're not saying, I don't appreciate your concern. They're saying, is if all I get is your concern, I, I, I don't care. And I believe, I don't know what the answer is, but I believe that Jesus wants us to speak a, the same truth in a different language than the one that we have been using in order to break through and see people who are far away from Jesus and hostile to the gospel to find their way back home. So in that first image, we see people who are starting in the middle and they get scattered everywhere. But when we finally get to Pentecost, what do we see? We see God take people from all over and bring them to the middle Bring them to the middle. Jerusalem at Pentecost 2,000 years ago is similar to Pyeongchang in South Korea at the Olympics today. People from 92 countries on six different continents are gathered in one city for two weeks. If you wanted to reach the broadest geographic sphere of people in a short amount of time, that's the way to do it. And if you look... If you look at it like a a broader map of the ancient world, you'll see that right there in the middle on the eastern shores of the Mediterranean Sea, that's where God would have been speaking. And all of the Jews, and the Jews had the first right of refusal when it came to the gospel, are scattered in three inhabited continents, Africa, Europe, and Asia. And the intersection of all of those would have been where? Jerusalem. God God is just not random willy-nilly throwing his truth out into the air. God is calling a very strategic shot. He's saying, I want my gospel to get to the scope of humanity as quickly as it possibly can. So I'm going to wait for people to make their way to Jerusalem for this big party. I'm going to bring them to faith, and then I'm going to send them out. Many times we get a little bit confused, and I I don't think that uh, our our intentions are bad here, but many times we think that the the ark of the gospel went this, that the track of the gospel went like this. That there were people in Jerusalem, Paul, who heard the gospel, he brought it to Europe, and then after the course of generations, it made it to many of our European ancestors, and they brought it to the United States, and then we, because we're so gracious and kind, returned the favor and exported it to the rest of the world. But when we read Acts 2, what do we find? That the message of Jesus made its way into the entire known world on three continents 2,000 years ago, all on its own. I had the opportunity to travel to the Middle East a few years back, and we met a woman, at, a Palestinian Christian at a church in Bethlehem. And one of, one of my buddies, an American, asked her, she's like, so when did your family hear about Jesus Christ? And she goes, oh, about 2,000 years ago. When did yours... And again, she, she was very great. We forget that what? That one of the languages that's listed here is that people heard the wonders of God being proclaimed in Arabic. Now, the Western church got fascinated with sharing the message of Jesus with the Arabic world shortly after September 11th. But the truth is, the message of Jesus made it to the Arabian Peninsula 700 years before the message of Muhammad did. Why? Because God loves every person so much. He wants them to hear the message of Jesus in their own heart language so that they can make a response on their own. After the declaration of God's wonders in many languages, Jesus' friend Peter preaches to the crowd. He explains who Jesus is, that he was fully God and fully man. And what he has done, he died a horrific death so that every single one of us could be forgiven for the crimes that we committed against God, ourselves, and others. He rose from the dead so that you and I could be freed and propelled into new life. And Acts 2.37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. So God wins their hearts, and then he cuts their hearts so that he might turn their hearts. And said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So they started this day perplexed. What's going on? And then in the middle of the day, they're perplexed. They're like, now now what? What do we do now? And Peter replied, here's what you do. You repent and you be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit too. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Here are a few of the brief lessons that I learned from the passage. The first one is this, is that God calls everyone everywhere through people. God calls everyone everywhere to himself through people. Now... You may hear stories every once in a while about how somebody who lived in an environment where there wasn't anybody who knew Jesus who could get to them, and they came to faith through a vision or a dream. That's amazing. We're so excited that God does that. But by and large, the overwhelming majority of people hear the message of Jesus Christ through somebody else who loved Jesus and who loved them enough to lay it down. God calls everyone everywhere to proclaim the gospel to others. God uses everyday ordinary people to declare his wonders to a hurting world. And that Jesus calls everyone in a voice that they recognize. One distinguishing characteristic of Christianity is that it is translatable. God meets us where we are. One theologian says God loves us so much that he puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. I remember one time I was hospitalized about a decade ago and there was a hospital chaplain who represented another major world religion and I was just trying to strike up conversation with him. And I said, hey, I've had a chance to read your holy book. And he said, did you read it in this language? And I said, no. And he goes, then you didn't read our holy book. You read a translation of it. You can only read the book if you learn the language. And what I love about the message of Jesus Christ as evidenced here at Pentecost is that God does what? God removes all of the extraneous barriers, hurdles, and obstacles that bar us from hearing the message of Jesus Christ in its simplest and easiest terms. Here's what I love about this passage. It says the Spirit fills people. When the Spirit fills them, they speak, and they continue to speak as long as the Spirit enables them. When the Spirit knows that that particular work is done, he stops enabling them to speak other languages, and they move on to the next moment of their life that requires the infilling of the Holy Spirit. So here's here's the running analogy here, is that when you run a long-distance race, you need fuel. You actually need to eat as that race goes on. And I— When I heard about this, when my buddy Mark and I were getting ready to do our first triathlon, I'm like, that's crazy. I am not going to do that. Like, the last thing I want to do before I work out is eat. Because if I eat and then I exercise, I will return whatever I have eaten to the earth. And nobody wants that. So, but we did this research and they said, when you do a triathlon, you actually need to, you need to ingest some form of calories because your body's expending so much energy it needs to do it. Well, what we didn't know... Is that all those training manuals are talking about people who are doing like Ironmans. Like 140 mile races. We're doing like a sprint triathlon that's going to be done in about an hour and a half. But Mark and I were so paranoid that we were going to bonk or we're going to hit the wall. We're like eating these goos and these energy drinks about every every eight minutes. We were sick when it was over because we fueled wrongly. (laughs) The truth is... If you want to finish the race that God has called you to, if we want to be people who are on mission together, we cannot run out of gas. And the one thing that we hear, the the undeniable, is that the fuel does not come from our wittiness. The fuel does not come from our creativity. The fuel does not come from our models or our methods or our programs. The fuel comes from the Holy Spirit of the living God. And if you and I are not filled, then when the moment of truth comes for us to share life with another person, we run the risk of being empty and coming up short. And I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to confess, there have been seasons in my life where I believe that God in his kindness opened up a door for me to share the gospel. But because I wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit, I had to recall stuff that was in my mind. And when we're only left to what is in our mind, our conscious mind, sometimes we get tempted to kind of like quickly craft and manipulate somebody towards a particular response rather than just being filled with the Holy Spirit and letting the Holy Spirit flow through us. I had a friend who was on a trip once who was on a service project and it required him to move luggage from one town to another. People were doing a charity ride to raise money for AIDS research. And as you can imagine, that drew a lot of different people with a lot of different thoughts about just about everything together for a common cause. And he was driving in a box truck with a woman who differed from him in Theology and race and gender and thoughts on human sexuality, they, they could not have been any more different. They were both US citizens, they both spoke English, but that's about where the similarities stopped. And one in one of those conversations that they had in about an hour and a half road trip, she turned to him and she said, So you're a pastor? And he goes, Yeah. She goes, Let me tell you what I don't like about the Jesus thing. That's always a fun way to start the conversation, right? And people are like, I have objections. And he goes, shoot, she goes, I don't like the fact that Jesus claims to be the only way. And he said, that's a, that's a fair objection. And then he said, he just kind of prayed under my breath like, Lord, I got nothing. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta show up here. And then he said this, he said, imagine that you're in a burning house. And the only way for you to escape that burning house is through the front door. Will you stand there and curse the front door for being unfair to all of the windows? or will you run out to save your own life? And she paused for a moment and she says, I get it. I don't like it, but I get it. And my buddy said, he goes, there was that moment where I kind of blacked out for a second when it was over. (laughs) I opened my eyes. I'm like, oh, I think that was the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And you know what I want? I want more of that. I want more of those. And I think you do too. And it starts with this. It's, it, starts, it starts this easily to be able to start every day on our knees and say, Lord, will you fill me with your Holy Spirit today? Will you fill me so full that I'm overflowing and that when, pe- when life bumps me, the spirit pours out? Will you, take a, will you take control of my conscious and unconscious mind? Will you infuse my words? Will you give me creativity? Will you give me means to connect with other people at a soul level that quite frankly, would terrify me in real life? And will God, will God allow us to do that? So I remember, so just God is sovereign and God loves people and God is gonna move heaven and earth to open doors for them to open their eyes to the gospel. I remember one time when my wife Kelly and I were living in suburban Detroit, we went to uh, one of our favorite ice cream places and there was a kid who was leaning up against the wall outside outside of this particular establishment and he just, just had this very hardcore, jaded, please don't make eye contact with me. Look, like there were, there were metal in odd places and it was black and tattered and holes and like just, just this angry scowl. And I remember we walked in and we, you know, just in our own weirdness, we like, didn't really make eye contact. And we walked out, our daughter, who was three at the time, looked up at this dude. And she goes, look, mommy, a pirate. <laughs> and you know what he did? He smiled. You know why? Because God knows how to melt hard moments. God knows how to open doors. And sometimes it's kids and sometimes it's foods and sometimes it's a conversation about sports. I don't know what it is, but the Holy Spirit is going to give you language. Maybe not like a spoken language, but God is going to give you communication language to be able to connect with people at this level right here. I think the reason that we get stuck is we all keep trying to say like, oh, if I, if I learn another argument, I can win people over. How many of you have had like great success winning people over by arguing with them? Thanks for nothing, Facebook. You're from the devil, right? <laughs> Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. <laughs> Jesus calls everyone everywhere to himself through people. Jesus calls everyone in a voice that they can recognize and that, but that requires the Holy Spirit's agency to make that transaction happen. And then Jesus calls everyone to a specific response. When Peter calls people to faith in Jesus Christ, he doesn't ask them to consider an idea. He doesn't ask them to feel a feeling. He asks them to make a decision. They say, What should we do? And Peter goes, here's what you do. He goes, You repent, you believe, you get baptized. To repent, to repent, it's just it's a military word. It means to turn around, it means to retreat. So to repent literally means to turn away from that which I have been focused on. And to believe means to turn towards, to turn towards. So when we ask people to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, when we ask people to convert, we're literally saying, I want you to turn away from something that is bringing you death, and I want you to turn towards something that is bringing you life. And what I've learned time and time and time again is that the message of Jesus brings clarity to the confused the message of Jesus brings clarity to the confused. And I think that many of us who are very well-intentioned and we wanna see other people find their way back to Jesus, we start with this starting point. Everybody who doesn't believe what I believe is against me. And everybody who doesn't believe what I believe is wrong. And everybody who doesn't believe what I believe needs to be bludgeoned to my point of view. When in reality, what do we find out when we read this passage? We read that people started out perplexed. They were like, "Ooh, Christians are bad. We're like, these people, these people are speaking in tongues. That's odd, let's go see how this thing works. They're curious, they're perplexed, they're confused. One of my favorite passages about mission, about God trying to help somebody understand his heart for the world, is the very last section of the book of Jonah. And if you haven't read the book of Jonah, it's about this guy who thinks that he wants to help God out, but in reality, he doesn't love the people that God loves. And the book of Jonah doesn't end with a happy ending. It doesn't get like tied up with a bow. It's not like Jonah and the Ninevites had a, like a group hug and everybody lived happily ever after. The book of Jonah asks us with a question. I think that God is asking us a question today as well. God says this, Jonah, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Side note, God cares about the animals. It's right there in black and white. Some of us, we don't care about the animals. God cares about the animals. If God cares about the animals, then God certainly cares about the people. And God says, what about the people? He doesn't say that at their core they're twisted and that they're evil and that they're wrong and that they're ugly. Certainly everybody um, has wandered away from God and has created a gap between God and themselves through their own rebellion. That is true. But God says this, he goes, shouldn't I be concerned from people who don't know their right hand from their left? And I think that many times we think that people who aren't yet walking with Jesus have all of the information and have already decided against it, when in reality, most people that I know who haven't yet encountered Jesus, especially as our nation gets further and further away from parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who have lived a consistent godly life, people don't even have a Christian memory anymore. They're starting from scratch. People don't dislike church. They have no idea what church is. They don't have enough information to dislike church. And so God says this to Jonah. He goes, Jonah, shouldn't I be concerned about people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? How old, were, how old were you when you finally figured out the difference between right and left? Like how many of you as parents, like you help kids tie shoes and they're like, wait, which is right, which is left again? Some of us were in junior high sports and your coach will always joke with you. He's like, no, your other left. Some of us took a long time to figure out the difference between right and left. And we're like, oh wait, which is it? Okay, it's this, this is left. Our nation, our world, is filled with people who are spiritually confused. They have no idea which way is up. And if, if you need any evidence, just look at the events of this last week. And rather than people starting with having their hearts broken by tragedy, everybody immediately shifts into blame mode. Whose fault is it? And who gets to be responsible for it? And how can we shame them into being different? Now I'm not saying that our country doesn't have to have very serious, thoughtful, productive conversations about mental illness and access to weapons and all that other stuff. I'm not saying that those conversations shouldn't happen, but I'm saying that those conversations are auxiliary to the fundamental conversation, which is this. How do we help people understand that they matter to God? How do we help people figure out what their right hand is and their left hand is? How do we help people weave their way out of darkness and despair and brokenness and fear? How do we get there? Because if we can answer that question, then we can start doing work on the rest. The book of Acts tells us this, that the Holy Spirit filled people and they spoke with words that they could not cognitively comprehend. And the result is that people found their way home to God. Can it happen again? You better believe it. We might not get tongues of fire, we might not get rushing wind. We might not get a spectacular mystical moment. I'm not saying that we won't, but, we might, but that's not guaranteed. What is guaranteed is this, is God says, do you believe that my DNA wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you can speak in such a way that people understand me and decide to follow me? The answer to that question is yes, all the time, every day, upside down and backwards, 24-7. The only thing that remains is this, will we, will we walk with God? Will we walk with God in that direction? So I said at the beginning that today is a day for some of us to sprint to the starting line. For some of us, the starting line is here. We say, "Am I ready to follow Jesus Christ with my life or not?" Some of you, in your heart of hearts, in your core of course, the Holy Spirit is cutting your heart right now the very same way that it did when Peter was speaking, and you're saying, "I am not in the good. I'm not in the right place. I'm building the wrong tower." My, the sum total of my existence has been about building a name for myself. And when I look in the rearview mirror, all I see is carnage. I see the wreckish, wreckage of selfish decisions. I see the relational fallout from bad choices. And I realize that I have distanced myself from God. I've hurt myself and I've wounded other people. It's, t- it's time for me to find my way back home. Here's all you need to do. You need to turn away and you need to turn to. You need to say, Jesus, I'm ready now. You lead me in your truth. So for some of us, your starting line, the first step that you take today is saying, Jesus, I'm ready, I'm in. Your first step is to turn. And for others of us who have already been doing this, our first step is to tell. Is to tell God, Lord, um, have mercy on me. I, I've, been, I've been sloppy in asking your spirit to fill me so that I can be about the things that you're about. Will you overtake every dimension of my life and claim it for your glory and your purposes? And will you give me opportunities This week, here's the prayer that I want you to pray. God, will you give me opportunities this week for your spirit to follow me? So that when we get, when I run into you in the lobby in seven days, you can say, you know what? I had this encounter with a person and for whatever reason, God gave me words that were not not my words. And as a result, there was a breakthrough in that conversation. I believe that those moments happen every single day around the world. And my desire is that they would happen every single day here through us, the people of Central. And I think think you want that too. So let's go to God, asking him for the grace to take our next step towards the starting line. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that your love is real. I thank you that your care for every single one of us runs deep. And Lord, there there are two groups of us, we need to make decisions today. Some of us need to decide if we're going to repent, if we're going to acknowledge that the life that we are living is running counter to the life that you call us to. Lord, if that's true, I pray that you would make that crystal clear, that you would just, in the gentleness of your spirit, you would say, "You're, you're, you're going the wrong way. Your life has become unmanageable. It's time for you to turn around and find your way back home. And Lord, there's another group of us who, quite frankly, just out of fear, or pride, or laziness. We keep thinking it's somebody else's job to declare the wonders of God in a way that people who don't yet know him can understand. And I'll write a check or I'll pray for the missionaries, but that's for somebody else to do. And Lord, today I just pray that you would convict us with your Holy Spirit and say, no. You have the privilege of partnering with God in living your life in such a way that other people want what you want. God, give us grace to be so filled with you that whenever we walk out of a room, just the the aroma, the scent of God's goodness would linger behind us. And people would burn to want what we want and have what we have. Spirit of God, fall fresh. Fall anew. Fall now. So that there is not any ounce of our being that is not indwelt by you. And do it not just so that we can have a feeling. Do it so that our lives could be mobilized for your kingdom and your purposes. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Just want to invite you to just sit. Just sit for one moment. And say, God, is there something that you need to say to me? What one step do you need me to take? Ask God to speak. Receive whatever it is that he gives you. And then when you're ready, you can join us as we sing back to him in a spirit of faith and gratitude.